0: Now I'm, I'm pushing with a new variation and it, it's the first time I'm, I'm talking about that. Uh, that is the Sparrow Technique B or what we
1: call the Ferreira Ishida Technique. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. So we have one goal in this podcast and that is to improve you as a patient or you as a surgeon's education. We hope that you're going to have fun as we dig deep into who these phenomenal human beings are, the world leaders in rhinoplasty, as we interview them weekly and learn how we can become better surgeons and how we can expect better outcomes as patients. I want to give a shout out to Medhold, the suppliers of Medicon instruments in South Africa who've come in as our first month sponsor. Medhold makes some absolutely fantastic instruments to use during rhinoplasty. Surely my favorites must be the black little suction dissector for septoplasty. It's one of the most nimble little instruments to use and it gives us great outcomes. So, Medhold, thank you very much. What's really cool is that Medhold have agreed for a 10% discount to anybody who sends them an email with the name Rhinoplasty Podcast. So you need to remember to send that email to Letty Swanepoel, and Letty's email address is l dot That's l dot s w a n e p o e l at Medhold. That's m e d h o l d dot c o dot z a. L dot at Medhold dot c o z a. Mention rhinoplasty podcast and get a great discount on some fantastic instruments. So so. Today, I'm very excited to have a man who's been a doctor for nearly 30 years. He comes from Porta in Portugal. Not only did he then finish medicine almost 30 years ago, he ended up doing otolaryngology. So he's an ENT surgeon and then he super specialized even further in facial plastic surgery. But he's started a very interesting group called the uh, Research Group uh, in Rhinoplasty Surgery. We're going to learn more about that. Um, and he's got a lot of other interests. And it's a great honor and privilege for me to welcome uh, Miguel Goncalves-Ferrera. Miguel, thank you for being on the show tonight.
0: Thank you so much, Cameron, for inviting me. I will try to do my best to to help, uh, especially the new ones. Uh, and uh, thank you for inviting me.
1: So Miguel, I'm gonna kick off eh? I know you're a man who is passionate about rhinoplasty but you've got a lot more other interests so let's go back 1993 is when you became a doctor what made you decide to become a doctor
0: well it's always a hard question to answer but it was my interest generally in biology you know i always uh, uh, loved that kind of stuff you know that in the labs with the tubes and uh, doing uh, chemical experiences and uh, well biology it was my Really, my my big field and uh, inside biology, medicine, but it was uh, more, uh, I would say, more uh, a scientific uh, thought, uh, scientific wish, uh, and then being with people, of course. And that's it.
1: And then, how did you end up getting into rhinoplasty of all things?
0: Well, uh, it was a long journey. In the in the beginning, yes, I was really interested in, in changing the shape of the nose and uh, I first started doing head and neck surgery. It's my other passion in surgery. Uh, I did lots of head and neck, and uh, I tried to do at the same time, to balance between head and neck and facial plastic. It's not easy. Um, I only know one guy that do it very well, both Peter Lohaus from, from Amsterdam. Uh, maybe there are many other guys, I don't know them, but uh, it was really hard, and suddenly I had to quit one of them. So. I created a neck, and I just fully devoted my my time to facial plastic. Uh, it was a long journey because we had no background in my hospital in facial plastic. My autolaryngology department was a, a well, an old one, not, not that old, but um, with no tradition in rhinoplasty, in facial plastic. And um, well, I had to learn for myself. You know, it was a long journey. Uh, but nowadays, my residents, they don't have to do that, that journey. But it, it was okay. And it was a great pleasure for me to start almost from the zero in the facial plastic. You know, in rhinology, we had lots of experience in functional surgery, not in facial plastic, not in aesthetic surgery.
1: And, but Miguel, what really inspires me is the fact that you, so you start from very little at the university in Porto where you now on the faculty. You've now built up facial plastics. But now you also go ahead and you go and do a PhD last year. Tell me a bit more about that.
0: Yes. Well, I was very interested in, in the uh, biomechanical engineering of the, the nasal pyramid and how to um, explain with engineers uh, how to explain the the mechanism that support the, the Sparrow technique, the, the, the technique that I was involved with. And um, we discussed a lot with my friends, the engineers, and uh, I thought that they were the only ones that could give us an answer, because it's a structure, the nose, and we should have the answer in the faculty of engineering. And we started to do lots of uh, research, uh, 3D modeling, studying cartilage, studying resistance of cartilage, and then suddenly someone told me, well, why not doing a PhD? You are doing the same of a PhD or something more than a PhD. So I spoke with my faculty and I started the program. It lasts, uh, It was the last four years, so it, it, the, the, duration, the total duration was four years of PhD. And, uh, well, it was really good, okay? But uh, I think that uh, maybe I didn't change anything if I didn't have... If I didn't do that PhD, you know, because I'm still working on the same uh, problem of cartilage. We are very interested in, in artificial cartilage, you know, there are many groups, or at least a few groups in the world that they are studying artificial cartilage. We are still studying that. We are still in a 3D modeling of the nasal pyramid. And what happened with surgery each time we do something in the nose, what happens and why it happens. And, uh, well, the PhD was something like, um, to, it was in, in parallel with this, because I, before the PhD and after the PhD, I'm still interested in, in that kind of stuff. And uh, well, but it was really a, a good achievement for me, of course.
1: Well, that's congratulations. Now, we're so proud of you. I know Filio Lukakis also got a PhD last year, and it's, it's inspiring. What would you say to people who considering to further their academic career through a PhD?
0: Well, uh, I think it's very, very interesting. Anyone can do a PhD, at least in, in theoretically, anyone can do. It's not, it's not. The, the problem is the focus. It's like you know, almost in you know, all things in in life, it's the focus. You have to be focused, and uh, we have to learn how to write papers. We have to learn how to read papers. We have to take our time. It's very difficult nowadays because we are always, always uh, running. We don't have time to do anything, there are so many solicitations at the same time. We live in a dig- digital era that is very, very stressing. Uh, we have to learn how to, um, how to balance our time in between our friends, our uh, all the other stuff that we like, non medical things, um, and it's very, very hard. Uh, I would advise that someone that... To, are interested in science and really li- likes uh, science just the way it is, should start a PhD program. And it uh, doesn't matter if it takes four, five, six, or seven years. Um, you just do a PhD. It's it's really great. For most of most of us, uh, we think that a PhD is something. It's a degree. It's the end of something. It's not the end of anything. Uh, PhD means something that the, your university recognize you as an investigator, that's it. That's the beginning of something. It should be the PhD, the beginning of something, not the end, not, not a stage to stay like that. Um, it's a recognition of the university that you are really an investigator.
1: Sure, so and I wanna come back to that, the- but I wanna ask you, how do you balance your life? Because I'm sure you must be busy with lots of other things apart from rhinoplasty. I mean, I know you're very passionate about photography, I've seen that. Apparently, you've even got your own photography book. Tell us a little bit more about what you do yes. when you're not doing Rhino Plus.
0: Yes, I try to do, well, it's not easy to balance. Uh, mostly in this last, last part of the PhD, it was really, I quit a little bit my the things that I really like. And uh, you know, many, many of us that uh, maybe would see this podcast know that I, I'm, I'm in love with photography for a long time uh, i I bring my book I have a book it's very it's my one of my prouds <laughs> it's very difficult to show here but uh well it's something it's split in colors the chapters are colors and I have ten chapters ten chapters with ten colors uh with the photography that I made all around the world uh well, photography is one of my hobbies of course i I love sports I was a volleyball player. I was a national championship of volleyball wow. um, and i love I love volleyball, yes uh, I still ride my motorbike um, well, there are many things that I do all this I cycle uh, you know it's very 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 interesting for me that uh, each time I, I develop my skills in other areas that I really like, I think I get a better doctor you know i uh, uh I have a group of friends, what we call the best friends. They, Most of them, they are architects, they are not doctors. But it was life, it was life, it happens like that because they were my friends when we were we were 14, around 13, 14 years old, and then each one take his life. And uh, well, I'm really passionate from for architects as well. And I read it uh, deeply. I study architects. And it's really, really, really interesting. And I think it helped us. I don't do it because it helped me to be a better, a better doctor. I do it because I, I love it, you know. But uh, in, in my faculty, we have a, a sentence of the, the, the major of the faculty um, that says that uh, a doctor that only knows medicine, not even medicine knows. Wow. And it's really important uh, that, uh, well, at least in my way of living, to balance, to have time to all this stuff is not uh, easy. But uh, if I have to quit something, if I have to quit, I don't say a webinar but uh, something in a in a meeting to go to picture, I, I'll go to picture <laughs> because it's something really from inside and I have, I have to do that.
1: Um, yeah, but I also so clearly remember a couple of years ago at one of the European meetings, you saying to me that Cameron, if you did not take photographs during your surgery, you didn't do the surgery. And I was quite shocked because then I realized that this is something I need to add to my practice. So I've actually got a permanent member of staff who's taking photographs and now hopefully videos of the entire surgery every single time. So yeah, I, I think it is such a wise and important thing because you can now use those photos to crit yourself or you can use them for presentations, etc. So no, I think those are very wise words, eh?
0: It's a, it's a different field because I, I never mix my passion to photography to photography of the facial plastics uh, uh, patients, but uh, well, it, it's a must, of course. And we have colleagues that do it better than me, the, the professional photography of uh, Rhino and it's very, very important. And they are, we have colleagues that they are obsessive, taping all, recording all the surgery. I think they are in the correct way. I, I don't, I don't do that. Uh, but I picture, of course, I always all the visit, all the consultations after the surgery, all the consultations. I picture at least the six plans, you know, of the face, and I have, uh, I have that in my files because it's really, really important. If you don't picture the patient, you don't know what you are doing because you have no no way to compare what what you achieve and uh, it's really important
1: so miguel as we talk about patients a little bit more when when a patient comes to see you how much what we call morphing do you do with a patient discuss with them about what they would potentially want their nose to look like etc
0: yes well, typically, you know, patients nowadays, they are, we are in a digi- digital era, of course. Instagram, Facebook, and typically they come here and they, they know what they want. Uh, they were waiting for this surgery for 10, 20 years, and they know exactly what they want. And typically, uh, when I saw, when I see them, I, first they have to tell me what they want. I never thought first, okay, it's one of my rules. They have to to say exactly what they want. And then I picture, of course, I picture them, I do 2D, I don't have the 3D, I do 2D um, morphing, and I balance, and it's really, it's amazing. I I really, I have difficulty to understand how can we practice rhinoplasty or facial plastic surgery without morphing. It's almost, uh, for me it's almost, I, I can't believe how can people, work without that, because it's such a tool. When you say to a patient that I will project your nose, if, you do, if, if he don't see the, the, the projection in a, in a simulation, how can he imagine? We are not talking about the same thing. It's a valuable tool, very, very important for me. Always do morphing, and it's very funny, because in the end, when we do the the, um, the video, morphing, you know, from, from the, the pre to the post to the imaginary post, it's very important for me to feel the balance of the nose, what we are doing with the nose. And sometimes I change my idea. Imagine, for instance, in a reddix, when we don't, didn't feel at the beginning that it was really low. And we see in the, in the video that it's really low. And sometimes I change my uh, strategy for the surgery only with the morphine. So I learn each time I morph. That's it's interesting. A
1: tool for me. And, and do you then give patients those photographs or do you keep them? Uh,
0: well, I let them to picture the screen, okay? They picture the screen uh, with the mobiles. Most of the times they have a mobile and they picture the screen. Uh, well, I always tell them, the. of course, it, it this is what I want to achieve, okay? Of course, this is not the final result. This is not the, uh, if, and I always tell my patients that if I would go as a patient to a doctor, and if uh, he showed me a picture telling, well, this will be your results, I uh, instantly I, I would think that I'm with a uh, non-trustable doctor because it's impossible uh, to assure something, whatever. I always say that this is the, what I want to achieve, but it will depend on many things, technically uh, during the surgery, how much your blood, um, well, your your healing process Well, there are many, many things And I discuss all that stuff with the, with the patients Because it's almost all the times It's the first time they came here And for them, it will be the first surgery Most of the times
1: And when you speak to patients What are the things that you try and emphasize the most for them? Perhaps um, things they must be the most cautious of Or be aware of what, what are some of the things that you, you feel are, are important to tell patients?
0: Well, really important to, yes, we have to manage the, the expectations of the patients. I think it's the most, the most important, what they want to achieve really. Um, and you know, we are, I don't know, suddenly I start to think that we are always imagining a perfect nose, we surgeons. We all surgeons, we want to see perfect noses, we, we want to see perfect outcomes, and we want to show perfect noses. I have many noses that they are not perfect. And uh, you know, I use the, the, the prompt, the the, the the questionnaire, to um, uh, auto evaluation of the patients. Uh, I use the Utrecht questionnaire, and I do it all uh, pre-op, three months, and, and uh, twelve months. And uh, when I it's from zero to ten, the aesthetic evaluation. When I get a ten, I get uh, a little bit scared. Because no one has a ten, okay. At least is in, in my opinion. When I get a ten, ten typically is what uh, the Americans call a supporter—someone some, that likes me too much, okay. And when I get a zero, it's—I don't remember the last one. It's the hater, you know. It's—it's it's not statistically it's not significant. But what I what I mean, we publish a study. in reality, we published two studies with these. And we found that the average that we, that we can reach, it's about 8, 8.5. So I explained exactly that scale to the patient. And he or she uh, suddenly knows that he will not, or she will not have the 10, okay? Uh, maybe 8, 8.5, 9 at the best. And it's very good. We are always, I think that we are always improving. We are not making always perfect noses.
1: No, of course. I mean, we carry on. I mean, I I think it's interesting you've mentioned two of Peter Loha's things. So I'm going to be interviewing Peter in the future. Um, Do you ever use the Schnoss uh, questionnaire from Sam most?
0: No, no, I never. I think it's very, very good. But, you know, this is a tool that when I because I use the questionnaire for a long time, if I change, I will not have how to compare so the problem is starting with one if you start with one good and and uh, your track questionnaire is a very good one if you start with a good one it's very hard to quit and to do change to another one because you you cannot compare the, the results and, but it, it's a good it's an excellent questionnaire
1: No, that's uh, awesome so so, yeah. so miguel i want to now move you so you said you know the phd gets you into something further than that and tell me now about this evidence-based research and rhinoplasty group. It's fascinating to see a a small group of like highly influential rhinoplasty surgeons have come together. So why did you want to do this?
0: Well, you know that this COVID season one year ago, well, we are almost one year lockdown. The world is locked down. I think that uh, what happened uh, with uh, WhatsApp, with Telegram, with Instagram, that it was an explosion that it would happen Lately, if if we didn't have COVID, but it, it would happen the same way, and uh, suddenly it's really um, too much uh, information, and uh, all the people. It's very easy to share. My imagine I always typically I operate five, six, seven rhinoplasties a week. Okay, if I share each one of the seven rhinoplasties to a group, and if there is a, a thousand. Of uh, members of that group, you will have seven thousand classes in one week. It's impossible. It's impossible to understand what 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 they did. So, what we try to do, and I I spoke with Sam at the beginning and uh, some of other guys, we try to do something that, uh, well, a group without publicity, just straight on, just straight to the point, and. Whenever possible, based on some evidence, okay, we should have, we should have some evidence. Of course, there are some things that there are many things that we don't have evidence enough, but there are many things that we have evidence. And I, I can, I can share just two or two slides. May I share? Please, please, go just ahead. To, yes, that we be great. To, yeah? Okay. Uh, let me. Okay. I will share just to show people what. Well. I think that most of you you know what is what is uh, uh, evidence-based medicine. It's not new. It's is, it has many years. And uh, well, in in, in rhinoplasty or in surgery, it's more difficult to find um, really good um, randomized trials, randomized or controlled studies. But anyway, we have to we have these three circles: the clinical expertise, what clinicians know, patient values, and best research evidence. And we should mix. All these, and this is the result. When we have one idea, we have to search the literature to know the best evidence that we have. We have to appraise that evidence. We have to apply that evidence, and then we have to assess our results. Uh, And this is typically how. Well, this is almost very difficult to do in surgery. Of course, this is almost uh, applied in medical um, uh, randomized controlled trials that we should split uh, a population in two in a control group and you should do something. In this case, we are doing surgery and we should measure our outcomes. Because otherwise we are always discussing ideas, opinions, we are always discussing the lower level of evidence that is expert opinion. It's very, very important to hear, to hear opinion of experts, of course, but uh, if you can increase the level of evidence, it's really much better. And you go higher and higher, a collection of reports, um, well, typically perspectives observ- observational studies, non-randomized uh, and randomized control studies, and this is the top, of course, randomized control double-blind studies. So, this is what we get. I, it was just a group of, of, of friends that they are interested in this. There are many other guys, many other colleagues that they are really interested in this. But the, the board must be finite, of course, to be to have some uh, uh, to be agile, of course. And nowadays we are 800, so uh, people are really interested in evidence-based uh, uh, medicine. In this case, uh, evidence-based surgery, and I think that we uh, this is really the. The future at least it's the more reliable uh, way to discuss something, otherwise you will have your opinion, I will have mine and this is this is just to spare time and to um, know that uh, at least everything that you have in that group should be scientifically i i wouldn't say proved, but some support, some basis of support, otherwise you will have one thousand opinions in one Sunday afternoon. Um, you know, typically, it, it seems impossible to 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 check all that opinions and.
1: No, Miguel. I mean, it's fantastic. Really, I I really want to commend you guys for doing it. I think it's, it's really good to have that. Um. So, if someone's listening to the podcast, they can't see the YouTube video. How do they get in touch with you to be able to become a member of this group?
0: Yes, I think I shared the the. I will share again. Uh, Is there an email address okay. that they
1: can send an email to?
0: Yes, yes, it's this email. I will sh- show you evidence based rrg.gmail.com.
1: Great, so that's so evidence that's based yes. rrg at gmail.com. Thank you, that's fantastic. Yes. So, Miguel, I have a question for you. Where do you, I mean, you're in the forefront of a lot of innovation in Rhinoplasty. Where do you see the Rhinoplasty going in the next decade?
0: Well, uh, Well, it's a hard question. (laughs) Uh, I don't know, well, maybe. I think that we we should see rhinoplasty as all surgery. We are not different from orthopedic surgery, vascular surgery, Uh, all the surgeons, I think we are, I have a good relation. I work in a general hospital, a big hospital. All surgeons are really interested in doing less surgery with better results. Whatever we do, we want to do less surgery, less trauma with better results. Rhinoplasty is not an island. Uh, we work just like them. And, uh, well, at least, for instance, you know that I'm a, a defender of the so-called preservation rhinoplasty. But it makes all sense, of course. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit overpriced expression, maybe. Um, I know and I understand people that don't do the so-called preservation. Um, they 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 say that we are really... Uh, overpricing the expression of preservation rhinoplasty, but uh, I think that in all fields of surgery they are trying to do preservation in all fields of surgery, and uh, I think that in te- not maybe not in ten years but in fifteen or in twenty years we will have finally artificial cartilage, and it yes. will be the, the yes. <laughs> it will be the big change, the big shift. It will be with artificial cartilage.
1: Yes. So I want to c- come back to that preservation. So. Can you explain to the listeners the difference between the, the different types of preservation rhinoplasty and what is it, structured preservation and not?
0: Well, there is, a, there is no consensus, of course. There is no one that says that the expression preservation rhinoplasty, I think it was coined by Roland Daniel and Yves Sabin. And, uh, well, it was just, uh, it has a past, a long past, okay, from the Lothrop, from the the early 90s, Uh, and the the question is to um, go into the cartilaginous middle vault or not. So, the question is, uh, can I lower a hemp and preserve the roof, Um, and it's funny because the first description of of this preservation rhinoplasty is before Joseph, Uh, so it, it doesn't appear just like an opposite of Joseph, you know? It's funny, historically, the first description, Lothrop, is before Jack Joseph. So the idea of preserving, lowering a dorsum, a Caucasian nose, typically a Caucasian nose, and preserving the the roof is very, very old. And there are many ways to uh, try to deal with that. And uh, I think that was Rodin Daniel uh, and Yves that coined the, the expression preservation rhinoplasty. Well, it makes all sense. If it is possible, we should preserve, of course. Um, Well, the the question is, I'm I'm a big defender of of preservation rhinoplasty. Uh, I have some slides that I can share with you. Yeah, please Uh, go ahead.
1: And Miguel, if I can ask you, what percentage of your cases do you do the spare roof technique?
0: Well, in primaries, I start always uh, to do that, to do the the, the spare roof technique. Now I'm I'm pushing with a new variation, and it's the first time I'm I'm talking about that. Uh, that is the spare of Technique B, or what we call the Ferreira Ishida Technique. Um, that I do, a spear, uh, some, something mixed in between Ishida and me, um, and it's the first time I'm talking publicly about that. We have a paper that was accepted in PRS, and uh, basically we are preserving the bunny cap in the V-shaped nasal bones, uh, I can share with you some slides, and I can I can show exactly what we are doing.
1: We'd love that. Yes. yes.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so, basically, okay. You know the uh, and about. Are you seeing my, my my screen? That's great. Thank you. Okay, you are seeing. Okay. I think that we must, nowadays, in my opinion, we should talk not only about closed and open uh, rhinoplasty, but uh, closed preservation, open preservation, closed structure, open structure. We, we have, in my opinion, we have four typical approaches to primary rhinoplasty. So, and in, in, in our group, what we found is that structure is about 75% and preservation about 25%. So. The idea is very simple: the idea of preservation, of course, lowering the dorsum, flatten the dorsum, and this is the most difficult part, and smooth the dorsum. This is some final refinements. I will go a little bit. This is our one of the anatomical bases of our um, technique, and we found at this point that the, the, the junction between the propenigular plate of the ethmoid and the nasal bones is before, when we, we go is before the beginning of the nasal hemp. So we published this study. I will go a little bit. I will move forward. And we published this uh, hemp scale. This is the average measures that we get in our population. And uh, we found that this is the admiral point. This is the beginning of the nasal hemp, okay? This is the kifian the rhenium, sorry, the hemp apex, most of the times cartilaginous and then the end of the nasal hemp. So, we typify our hemp, we decide to do the spare roof exactly here and the question is always this question. We want to, to, to go from this nose to this nose. How can we achieve this? Of course, we can use Joseph, we can take all the hemp and then reconstruct. It works. We know that it's absolutely proven that there are many, many structural surgeons that they have excellent results, and there's no doubt about that. And we can do this preserving the roof. How can we do this? Well, typically, the, the, the spare roof technique, I, as you know, I uncap the bony cap. Uh, I do it with uh, with a diamond burr. Nowadays, I'm still starting to use the piezo, and it is the, the spare of technique the way I present it so many times. And one of the big problems is, is these S-shaped nasal bones. And what happens with preservation is when, classical preservation, we push down, let down. When we do the osteotomies, the impactation osteotomies or the infection oste, osteotomies, we can still get these slightly hemp. So this is one of the limitations that the, the typical or classical push um, down might have in some really S-shaped uh, nasal bones. Well, what we started to do from often year ago, I will show you. Well, let me pass this one. This is the, the spare roof technique itself. The slides from preservation of rhinoplasty from Dr. Daniel and Dr. Aaron Kozin's dorsal preservation tip preservation and soft tissue preservation, three kinds of preservation, foundation and surface techniques. It will come out a paper very soon. Let me pass the slides to show you how we are dealing now with the, how we are dealing now with the, the pony cap. Okay, here we have the V-shaped nasal bones and here the S-shaped nasal bones, and what we are doing now. Okay, and this is what uh, I'm starting to do to the V-shaped nasal bones. is preserving the bony cap, and uh, basically this is completely based on aesthetic, the aesthetic dorsal lines, that are the most important uh, dorsal, the, the most important lines in, in, in the frontal view, of, of course, uh, in the nose. This is what we design, and what we do in these V-shaped nasal bones is that we take out a triangular shape of the cartilage, as you can see here. First, we take out the strip of septum, just like in the classical roof technique. Then we do these osteotomies in the aesthetic lines that we have marked in the skin. Then we take this triangular of bone, this triangle of bone, just the bone, Okay, we take out the bone. I will show you. We release the lateral piston area. We do the lateral osteotomies, and then with just a simple tap tap, this roof goes down. But we preserve, you can see the way we do. You can do Indonesia with the piezo, you can do in different ways. We have just to do the, the just to follow the aesthetic lines, it's very important. We take this triangle. This is the release of the lateral keystone area. This is the final touch. You can do this Indonesia uh, the same way. And this is the final result. Here, we, this was a V-shaped nasal bone. We preserve completely the line of the dorsal line. And this is what we get. Then we, we do, in the end, the, the septoplasty. Then we suture, just like in the Sparrow technique, we suture to the dorsal septum, and this is what we have in the end. And I will show you a movement, what happened with with uh, with this technique that we call the Sparrow technique B, preserving B of bony, preserving the bony cap. So we are taking out this triangle, releasing the lateral keystone area, and what happened, I will show you again the, the movie, I think it's quite obvious what happened. All the structure goes down because we release the lateral keystone area just with a fracture here, one simple fracture. So it was accepted to publish in PRS and it will be very soon. You can see here, and this is very, very interesting. It's a personal approach. This is completely dissection that I made just for teaching purposes, but In real surgery, I don't do all this dissection. I preserve this perichondrium and this periosteum. Okay, this is for teaching purposes only. In real surgery, I only dissect the parts that I will uh, work on. So I take this triangle, okay? I release the lateral keystone area, but I preserve this perichondrium and this periosteum, and I get really good results. You can see Oops, okay, you can see here. Because this is beautiful, okay, we can see all the anatomy, but if we are operating like this, at least in my hands, we get less support, and uh, um, typically I do uh, in that way. So, this is what I have to show you, and um, I hope it was a, a good surprise. We are going to publish this very,
1: very soon. That's fantastic, Miguel, thanks, eh? So. A question I have is how many patients are in that series? In this one,
0: in this, I think we made about 40, 40 wow. patients.
1: Oh, that's with The Sparouf
0: Technique B. okay? For yeah. the Technique B. The other, the Sparouf Technique, the traditional, we have more than 600 patients. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think that every time this is possible, the B, preserving the booty cap, I think it's Absolutely, it's more uh, uh, physiological, less traumatic. Of course, we preserve the body cap. We have to go just straight to the structural part that we want. We don't have to release anything more.
1: I think your architect friends have helped you there. Sorry? Sorry? Your friends, your architect friends have helped you.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Not exactly, yes, I don't know. Sometimes we have ideas, uh, our brain is always working and uh, like it it was something in between my technique and Ishida technique, okay? And uh, that's why I I call it uh, Fred Ishida, because it's something... I think that it's uh, the best of the two techniques. But uh, anyway, the structural support, the anatomical support of this technique, in my opinion, is still the spare of technique, the, the, the same uh, logical for the spare roof technique we are sparing your roof here completely
1: that's fascinating In the
0: technical,
1: uh, yeah miguel that's really it's been so interesting to chat to you this evening um i really appreciate everything i don't know if you got a last little thing you might want to add before we close off the podcast
0: well many things uh, thank you so much for having for having me here thank you so much for you are doing such a revolution in rhinoplasty communication, of course. You know, it's your time now, uh, and I'm very very seriously uh, with you. Uh, I told you once that you are doing something that, like the United Nations of rhinoplasty, uh, and it, it's incredible. You occupy a space that doesn't belong to anyone. Now it's yours, you and the South African team. You are really um, a wonderful team with amazing ideas and uh, congrats you.
1: to you all on your name and thank no, you so much it, for yeah. thanks man it's, but I think it's just that's an, an, always an inspiration for me going overseas and meeting the people that write all the articles and write the textbooks and actually see just how approachable they are and how happy they are to teach so yeah thank you very much for this evening and thank you to all our listeners and we'll catch you again next week